Welcome to the Theology Mill, brought to you by Whitfenstock Publishers. I'm your host, Zach Mickle. In this podcast, we interview some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and more. Many of the folks we talk with on the show are also authors with us at Whitfenstock, where we have the honor of putting into print a broad swath of work that nourishes both the academy and the church. On this episode, I interview Dr. Donald Wallenfang. Dr. Wallenfang is a secular discalced Carmelite, and he's also the professor of theology and philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He's published many books with us at Cascade, including A Cascade Companion to Phenomenology, um, a book called Dialectical Anatomy of the Eucharist, another called Emmanuel, Levinas, and Variations on God with Us, and lots, lots more. Uh, Wallenfang was a student of Jean-Luc Marion while he was doing his PhD uh, at Loyola Chicago. He is also married and the father of six children. So in this interview, which is for our phenomenology booth, Dr. Wallenfang and I discuss Jean-Luc Marion, Emmanuel Levinas, Edith Stein, John Paul II, and the relationship between phenomenology and metaphysics. So without further ado, friends, let's head over to the interview. Let's dive into questions um, to start. Uh, because it is such a dense field, I guess, how would you define or describe phenomenology to someone who knows nothing about it or someone who's new to it? Well, Zach, it's one of my favorite questions to be asked. What is phenomenology, especially by someone who may not know anything about it. It's a real challenge to give definition to it. And I knew you were going to ask that question. So I prepared over a dozen definitions, uh, but I won't share them all. <laughs> in the interview, uh, I'll plan to send the, the notes in case you want to add footno- footnotes to the interview. I don't know if that's allowed, but... Um, <laughs> well, it is, it is. So we would, okay. we would definitely welcome that. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll just highlight just a couple of of the main definitions. One of my favorite descriptions of phenomenology by uh, American phenomenologist Robert Sokolowski from Catholic University of America, he writes that in the North American philosophical world, phenomenology has always been something like Apple computer in the world of electronics. It enjoys a durable presence but is restricted to a relatively small, though enthusiastic, market share in comparison with the huge numbers of those who follow the philosophical analog of IBM and DOS, namely analytic philosophy and its various clones. So I really like how Sokolowski compares phenomenology to something like Apple computers. And he wrote this back in around the year 2000. So a lot of time has passed and I think Apple computers has grown in its uh, popularity to and to be a real competitor uh, with uh, uh, Microsoft and so on, but in any case, I think phenomenology is like that. There's something automatically uncanny about it, and yet something very serious and productive, beneficial. So I want to turn to some short definitions by Edmund Husserl, who's known to be the father of the method of phenomenology. At the turn of the 20th century with his two-volume work called Logical Investigations. So in volume one, he writes that pure phenomenology 
must bring to pure expression, must describe. And that's the key word for what is phenomenology as a philosophical method. It's a purely descriptive method of lived experience in contrast to metaphysics, which is an explanatory method, thinking about cause and effect, act and potency, form and matter, all these different categories. Mm -hmm. But Ustro says pure phenomenology describes phenomena in terms of their essential concepts and their governing formulae of essence, the German word Wesen, essence, what gives itself to consciousness, the essences which directly make themselves known in intuition, that is the sense of passive consciousness, receptive consciousness, and the connections which have their roots purely in such essences. And he goes on to say it's a field of neutral researches in which several sciences have their roots. Meanings inspired only by remote, confused, inauthentic intuitions, if by any intuitions at all, are not enough. And this is his battle cry. We must go back to the things themselves. So this is a definition of Husserl. So we really must go back to how did he understand phenomenology since he was the pioneer of the method to begin with. A close second, and I'll wrap up my response to this question, is Heidegger in his classic work, Being and Time, in paragraph seven, a famous line where he says, higher than actuality stands possibility. We can understand phenomenology only by seizing it as possibility. So in phenomenology, because it's a purely descriptive method, it brackets judgment in advance. And it simply wants to describe what phenomena give themselves within lived experience. And so for this reason, it elevates what we would call possibility or in German Möglichkeit above actuality, which is the exact opposite really of metaphysics. It doesn't mean that these methods can't work together or speak to one another, but it is what I've called the backdoor approach to the house of truth, or as I would position metaphysics as the front door to the house of truth. And then Maurice Merleau-Ponty says, that the whole effort of phenomenology is to recover this naive contact with the world and to give it at last a philosophical status. So it's going back to the experience of childhood, really, recovering a naive, uninhibited, uh, um, naive contact with the world and giving this experience of things, this experience of wonder, of awe, of gratitude, thanksgiving, giving all this philosophical status. And finally, uh, in my book, Human and Divine Being, as you mentioned, I, I define phenomenology as intending to be a purely descriptive method of investigation. The main question it asks is, what gives? Yes, it's that simple. It intentionally brackets and sets aside the so-called natural attitude that as Edith Stein says, is indeed simultaneous with the practical person. Thank you for that. That's, yeah, that's a really rich and full picture I think you've painted already. So, um, also for those who are new, I guess, what are, you, you mentioned several authors there, um, including Sokolowski, who I think can be a great starting point, but what are two or three books maybe that uh, would be good starting points for those who are new to phenomenology. 
Yes, I think in every question you ask, you might get more than you bargained for because that's the nature <laughs> of phenomenology. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It describes on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, the, so I, I do have five quick titles I could I could share with you. Um, Chad Engelin's 2020 book by MIT Press entitled Phenomenology, I think is a very helpful, reader-friendly introduction. Second, Dan Zahavi's 2019 book, Phenomenology, The Basics, also very well done by an expert in the field. Uh, if you want something a little more robust, Dan Zahavi's 2003 book entitled Husserl's Phenomenology, so giving an introduction specifically to the phenomenology of Husserl, even though the method has come a long way in the past 100 plus years. Um, as you mentioned before, my humble contribution, uh, Phenomenology, a Basic Introduction in the Light of Jesus Christ, published in 2019 with Cascade uh, this book, what I try to do is enliven the description of the, the philosophical method, which otherwise may be rather dry on its own, with reference to Jesus Christ and the gospel, and portraying Jesus as this phenomenologist par excellence. Not that Jesus leads us to phenomenology, but vice versa, that phenomenology helps us understand Christ better and how he approaches life and, and how we understand divine mercy even better. And finally... Going back to the master Edmund Husserl's 1907 Göttingen Lectures, uh, put together in a book called The Idea of Phenomenology. It's a shorter book of his, it's a bit more technical, but if someone wants to go right to the source, that's where I would start with Husserl's writings. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I really appreciated your intro, your Cascade Companion. I think I think it was distinct from other kind of intro level um, books on phenomenology and that your your sort of catholic face even your carmelite spirituality kind of came through and I, I actually read it with a buddy of mine and we both were the thing we loved most about it was kind of the contemplative aspect of it so that's that's um yeah a great starting point from my humble opinion um so yeah of course um this is kind of a fun question although maybe it's a little bit daunting uh, who is your favorite phenomenologist to read? And then, well, I guess it's two questions in, in one. And why? Um, and then also, what is your most treasured phenomenology volume and why? Mm -hmm. Divine Providence works in wonderful ways. And when I look back when I was studying at Loyola University Chicago, between the years 2000 and uh seven in 2011 um it just so happened that jean-luc marion one of the greatest phenomenologists in the world happened to be teaching down the street at university of chicago and i was introduced to his work while at loyola uh, with my uh mentor there john mccarthy uh, who had studied with david tracy at university of chicago and paul ricour at the university of chicago it's a great legacy of um, philosophical theology at University of Chicago, Paul Tillich, uh, and um, and others. But Jean-Luc Marion was teaching there, and once I found out about him, I went I went to lecture with my class that John McCarthy was teaching. Uh, uh, Marion's lecture, which is on YouTube to this day, called something like a phenomenological sketch of sacrifice, and it was just 
brilliant. And Mm -hmm. I just fell in love with his work and thought, and I have to sit at the feet of this master. And so I did. I went through this, the Graham School to get credit through University of Chicago uh, for my PhD at Loyola. And I took a course with Marion on givenness, especially in the work of Husserl and Heidegger. Uh, and it was just wonderful. And I got to know him. And then he was on my dissertation committee and ended up writing a forward to my book, Dialectical Anatomy of the Eucharist. But for me, Jean-Luc Marion is is the master. He's my contemporary you know, master, like Husserl was to Edith Stein. And, um, and so I, I dedicated my book, on my Introduction of Phenomenology to Marion. So I have to go back to him as my favorite phenomenologist in the whole genealogy of phenomenologists. I think uh, his work is incredible. And and for me, the centerpiece of all of his books is his 1997 book called Being Given, Toward a Phenomenology of Givenness. So if someone wants to really understand Marion's thought um, in a systematic way, that I think is the book to go to even though it may take some primers to work up to it, but that's where he lays out his whole um, vision of this phenomenology of givenness, as he calls it. This being said, I can't help but at the same time say uh, my all-time favorite text to read next to Marion and next to Paul Ricoeur is Emmanuel Levinas because I believe his observations cut to the heart of the universal human vocation, not only to contemplate, not only that Aristotelian theoria, but to live in responsibility for the other who faces me. And his two great books, his 1961 um, work, which was, was his doctoral dissertation, Totality and Infinity, an essay on exteriority, and then uh, some years later, uh, what I think is his crowning work, otherwise than Being or Beyond Essence of 1974, uh, these stand out to me as the greatest historical achievement of phenomenology to date. Uh, though to enter the thought of Levinas in a more manageable way, because he is difficult to read uh, without a lot of background, I would recommend collections of interviews with him. Uh, the 1982 book, Ethics and Infinity, Conversations with Philippe Nemo, and also the um, 2001 collection of interviews edited by Joe Robbins entitled, Is It Righteous to Be? Interviews with Emmanuel Levinas. Thank you for that. Yeah, I also found, you know, I, I've, uh, I read a book of interviews, I forget who it was by, um, but that was for me a great kind of starting point as far as reading Emmanuel Falke. Um, and then from there, I felt like I could go into his writings and actually kind of keep up um, at least much better than I would be otherwise. Right. Um, speaking of which, uh, yeah, as you well know, you've already given mention to several of the terms um, in phenomenology. And I think that's one of the biggest complaints is that it can be very like jargon heavy, uh, very dense, very difficult reading. Um, I mean, I've compiled here like a short list of some of the terms, but the list could go on and on. We have, you know, manifestation, intentionality. Um, I don't speak German, so I'm going to butcher this, but as gibt, uh, givenness, bracketing, phenomenological reduction, the other, the face. And then if we go into Heidegger, we have design. 
Um, and like I said, the list could go on and on. Um, but what would you say are kind of some of the most important key terms to know? Um, and I guess, how would you define them as well? Sure. Yeah, I've got seven quick ones. Some coincide with the list you just mentioned. The first one, uh, and, and to me the most important, is the German gegebenheit, which we translate in English, givenness. Givenness, which refers to the description of how every phenomenon comes to us comes to the human subject, it gives itself. And as you mentioned, es gibt in German, it gives, literally. Uh, we could say loosely, there is, but that gets too metaphysical sounding. But for phenomenology, es gibt, it gives. What gives? The phenomenon gives. So that's the first thing. But to receive the phenomenon, the method of phenomenology, the first thing that must be done is what's called in Greek, the epoche, to bracket or suspend the so-called natural attitude. As you heard earlier, it's the attitude of the practical person, the kind of know-it-all, the smug, pretentious, nothing new under the sun, says Koheleth, you know, thinking of Ecclesiastes in scripture. Mm -hmm. But this is called the phenomenological reduction. And it must be done not only once, but over and over and over again. It's like uh, um, parallel to Christian conversion, metanoia. In Christianity, this ongoing conversion that's meant to happen every day, every hour, every second. And so phenomenology, to receive the givenness of everything crashing in on consciousness, we have to keep bracketing, 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 so that we let what gives itself give itself as it wants to give itself to us. It's what I call the Marian fiat of um phenomenology and theology for that matter, uh, let it be done unto me according to your word or according to the givenness of the phenomenon. So that childlike receptivity to everything. Uh, then it, we have to understand what's meant by the natural attitude that has to be bracketed. We could describe it as a pre-philosophical assumption that the world exists as is and can be taken for granted according to all of one's presuppositions, biases, and ready-made projections. Uh, so the natural attitude is what has to be unmasked and deliberately bracketed in order to receive all that might give itself. Then there's a couple of German terms describing uh, the context of receptivity to phenomena or the context of interpretation, Lebenswelt the life world or the comprehensive context in which every phenomenon gives itself and is interpreted by the human subject. Also very important. There's no uh, phenomenon that gives itself apart from a womb uh, of the world that envelops the human subject, the Lebenswelt. And then also we'll find the term Umwelt, which is the world of our immediate surroundings that grounds us in our every experience. And then as you mentioned, the, the, the pairing intentionality and intuition. Intentionality is the movement of this human subject outward toward what gives itself. It's the voluntary directedness of consciousness toward phenomena that give themselves to consciousness. And intuition, its counterpart, is, is more inward. It's that passive receptivity of consciousness to phenomena 
that give themselves to consciousness. So these would be a few key terms, I think, to begin to understand the method. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, to move into the interplay uh, between phenomenology and metaphysics, right? I mentioned already that you wrote um, Cascade Companion on each of these, um, but also in your, um, I think one of my favorite pieces of your writing that I've that I've personally read is the conclusion to your companion, the phenomenology, where you kind of make this uh, crescendo or this just this ending argument for kind of twining uh, phenomenology and metaphysics together in a kind of symphonic way. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, people like John Paul II and Edith Stein, who you wrote a book on, who have done this. Um, so I guess my question is, what, what do these two fields offer each other? Um, and also, you know, how do they, how do they differ um, but what what might this kind of twining of phenomenology and metaphysics actually look like? Yes, for sure. So it's a real challenge for contemporary philosophy to retrieve and recuperate what I would call classic metaphysics. We think of figures like Nietzsche, who sounds the, the death knell for metaphysics with this God is dead, that is the God of metaphysics is dead. Uh, and even studying with Marion, he's constantly uh, critiquing metaphysics in order to result in a very productive, creative phenomenology, which is good. But as I, I was getting really excited about phenomenology in my doctoral studies, I did a book review of Edith Stein's English translation of her book, uh, Potency and Act, uh, which was her habilitation work that she wrote, which brings together phenomenology that she studied with her master Husserl and Thomistic metaphysics. And as I start to observe this more and more in people like John Paul II, Edith Stein, uh, Balthasar, Rahner, even Ricoeur, all these great thinkers, I said, there's something about them. They're not willing to let metaphysics go. And, and so even for myself, I realized phenomenology may be like the sail of the vessel, but metaphysics remains the perennial anchor. And I had to follow suit, um, especially when I read in John Paul II's 1998 encyclical, Fides et Ratio, on Faith and Reason, where in paragraph 83, he writes that we face a great challenge at the end of this millennium to move from phenomenon to foundation, a step as necessary as it is urgent. Now, he studied phenomenology at the Jagalonian University uh, with um, colleagues of Roman Ingarden, who was a colleague of Edith Stein, who studied directly with Husserl. So this is John Paul II, both Thomist, he studied at the Angelicum and wrote his doctorate in theology on uh, St. John of the Cross and the theological virtue of faith in John of the Cross. And he wrote his philosophical um, dissertation on the phenomenology of Max Scheler. But for him to say this in an encyclical, I thought as a Catholic, I really have to take this to heart because he's not disowning phenomenology but he, like some of his papal predecessors, are saying we have to be careful and on guard against what is called phenomenalism. And I'll send you the note 
um, that points to some of these other encyclicals that critiques phenomenalism. And we're, we don't want to confuse phenomenology, which is very beneficial, with phenomenalism, which is very misleading. So we need to move from phenomenon to foundation. He goes on to say, in Fides et Ratio, we cannot stop short at experience alone. Even if experience does reveal the human being's interiority and spirituality, speculative thinking must penetrate to the spiritual core and the ground from which it rises, namely metaphysics. Therefore, a philosophy which shuns metaphysics would be radically unsuited to the task of mediation in the understanding of divine revelation. So a quote like this, uh, I, I realized I had to anchor my own thought in metaphysics all the more and the work of the angelic Dr. Thomas Aquinas and, and many others in, in this longstanding tradition called perennial philosophy. Edith Stein also has this beautiful essay published in a book called Knowledge and Faith, where she um, narrates an imaginative encounter between Husserl and Aquinas uh, at the fireside. It's a beautiful dialogue that she writes there. And, and I read that too around the time toward the end of my, my doctoral studies. Um, at the same time, metaphysics needs phenomenology in our time. I would insist on that, lest we fall into a dry, crusty, irrelevant for most ears philosophy that uh, does not serve evangelization. But... Mm -hmm. Philosophy within the process of evangelization depends on phenomenology at this point. This is why I would recommend every serious follower of Christ to know something about it to some degree and not to dismiss it out of ignorance. Because if we really read these great thinkers, they're not dismissive of phenomenology. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole personalist movement of the 20th century, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, uh, John Paul II, Edith Stein, uh, so many others, what's going on there. And, and in his 2003 address to a delegation of the World Institute of Phenomenology of Hanover, John Paul II says this, phenomenology is primarily a style of thought, a relationship of the mind with reality, whose essential and constitutive features it aims to grasp, avoiding prejudice and schematisms. I mean that it is, as it were, an attitude of intellectual charity to the human being and the world, and for the believer to God, the beginning and end of all things. To overcome the crisis of meaning, which is characteristic of some sectors of modern thought, I insisted in the encyclical Fides Eratio, paragraph 83, which I just quoted, on an openness to metaphysics, and phenomenology can make a significant contribution to this openness. Yeah, it's interesting because I I feel like, I mean, we're talking about sort of two poles with phenomenology and metaphysics, and I feel like in at kind of the popular discourse level, phenomenology sort of taken to the extreme sort of looks like relativism, mm -hmm. and, and, and metaphysics taken to the extreme sort of looks like scientism, or I guess those are just two examples maybe of those yeah. extremes. Right. Um, so I appreciate your perspective of of having kind of balance and charity towards each side and, and trying to twine these together um, in a way that's a little fuller, a little richer. 
Um, you had you had mentioned a bit about Marion and studying with him, um, and really being captured by his work, and then um, and but then also kind of discovering a return to metaphysics, or maybe discovering um, just maybe Marion taking kind of this uh, you know his book God without being maybe kind of taking this um, uh, this kind of absence of metaphysics too far. Um, but throughout all your books with Cascade, you really, it seems like you're often turning back to Marion, um, Jean-Luc Marion and Emmanuel Levinas. And these are kind of two um, interlocutors who you, who you come back to again and again. Um, and it seems like your work in, in a lot of ways could be described as kind of a productive tension between these two thinkers. Um, so maybe describe for me kind of the fruitful interplay you found um, between between these two? Yes, for sure. I think in a post-Holocaust world, um, what it says to Christians is we cannot forget our roots in Judaism. Jesus is Jewish after all. And um, what happened with the Jewish Holocaust was horrific and is characteristic of so many eugenic programs and genocide movements around the world throughout human history. But we can't do Christian theology the same after the Jewish Holocaust, which was only decades ago. So for me, it, it, it's, a, it's a grand pause as I approach philosophy and theology and know that I must cling to my Jewish roots, uh, and as much as I'm Catholic and as much as I'm Christian. So Marion is Catholic and Levinas is Jewish. And I think their thought falls in a common genus, not only of phenomenology, but within this theological turn in phenomenology and, and philosophy in general of the 20th century. And for this reason, both figures are very interesting to me. And when I read what they have to say, I can't help but close the book and say, this is the truth, like Edith Stein did with Teresa Vavala's autobiography. Um, but I noticed in reading both figures that first, Marion was influenced significantly by Levinas. Levinas came first. Marion knew him somewhat. And when we read Marion, we see how much he depends on the Levinasian advancements in the phenomenological method and its development. But both of them enact the phenomenological reduction to a radical degree. Marion, for his part, concentrates the reduction on givenness, what gives. So it's, it really cultivates contemplation in relation to um, the world, the universe. Levinas intensifies the reduction in a different direction. And that is to the ethical exigency that characterizes the face-to-face -face interpersonal relationship. And as I read both of them, I realize that for a good philosophy that thinks toward the whole, I don't need to choose between one or the other. We can have the best of both worlds. So by putting both of their phenomenological findings into confrontation, which there is a confrontation, but also conversation, Pacific conversation, peaceful conversation, a dialectical phenomenology emerges, what I've called it, especially in dialectical anatomy of the Eucharist, that is more complete 
than that of either of them in isolation. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You're you're talking a bit about sort of almost an inner religious exchange, right, between Marion and Levinas. And um, that's a big part of your project with dialectical anatomy of the Eucharist, where you're, you're kind of the three central figures you're looking at are Marion, right, who you said is a Catholic, Paul Ricoeur, who's a Protestant, um, and then Levinas, who's a Jew, as you said. You're kind of pressing them into conversation. Um, so you've mentioned a, a bit about how Marion and Levinas talk to each other, um, but obviously you, you work out this uh, kind of triads um, uh, conversation in that book. So, so how do those three thinkers sort of talk to each other in your book? Um, and then also, what are some of the ecumenical implications of their conversation? Yes. So what has come to be known as the Judeo-Christian tradition has roots and a living history. The cleavage between Judaism, Catholicism, and Protestantism tends to be too drastic and reductionistic. Oftentimes, the lines we draw between these respective traditions are rather superficial and, and do not reckon with the unified interplay between all three of these living traditions of faith, which have so much in common. So in Dialectical Anatomy of the Eucharist, I attempt to reintegrate the fullness of this common genus and genealogy of faith, synthesizing the peculiarities and complementarities of each living tradition that together are destined to be united as one. So in Dialectical Anatomy of the Eucharist, it's written in the vein of Franz Rosenzweig's Star of Redemption. Although its analysis is concentrated on the sacramental phenomenon of the Eucharist, in the Catholic tradition specifically. But the ethical implications of this conversation between Marion, Ricoeur, and Levinas are immense, both for philosophy and theology. The irreducible contributions of each are brought together in a fruitful dialectical tension between the religious expressive dynamisms of manifestation in Marion and that of proclamation and attestation in Ricoeur and Levinas, resulting in what could be called contemplative ethics or ethical contemplation. So it, it goes back to this classic distinction in the Judeo-Christian tradition between contemplation and action. Uh, and all the great saints and thinkers say we cannot separate the two. But we see in philosophy these various tendencies uh, to narrow, to truncate in relation to a much bigger picture. And this commitment to the thinking toward the whole, if we're convinced that truth is the whole, means that we have to bring these contrasting thinkers together in a kind of point and counterpoint to generate something new, what could be called even a third way out of various aporias that meet human thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is actually, actually in some ways what you're saying sounds very Balthazarian, um, right? Because, I mean, obviously he's kind of known as 
a contemplative and he's he's a theo you know obviously a dogmatic theologian but he's some of his work he's drawing from mystics and his work is kind of this really beautiful fusion kind of 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 um of contemplation and uh, ethics or action. Um, and spe yeah, speaking of ethics, um, as we're on that subject already, and otherness, right, in the work of Levinas, um, you've written on Levinas and Edith Stein, um, and obviously otherness and ethics play a big role, um, not just in their work, but in their actual um, lives. So um, for our listeners or for our readers, how how do those ideas manifest in their, both in their writings and also in their lived histories? Sure. First of all, both Levinas and Stein were Jewish and therefore were raised with a heightened ethical sensibility in their family life, in studying Torah, other Jewish feasts. Edith Stein's favorite feast, for example, was the Day of Atonement. And um, she loved the all-day fast and everything. But this very, not just mindfulness, but committedness to one's neighbor and even the stranger. So they have this so much in common. And, and then this goes back to, within the Judeo-Christian tradition, the genius of Judaism in the world. Among the ancient people groups, what's unique about the Jewish people, they are above all the ethical people. The, the people who understand <clears throat> this radical monotheism as expressed precisely in Torah and law, instruction, teaching, this way of responsibility. So both Levinas and Stein likewise experienced the horrors of the Jewish Holocaust in the earlier part of the 20th century firsthand. Stein herself being murdered eventually in an Auschwitz-Gatz chamber in 1942. And Levinas being spared since he was serving in the French military, yet taken as a prisoner of war between 1940 and 1945. Five years living as a prisoner of war. Many of Levinas's family members, however, including his parents, were murdered by the Nazi regime. But one of the fundamental Jewish tenets of faith is the radical otherness of God in relation to the creature. God is precisely not the universe and no part of the universe. This is what the prophets never fail of reminding the Jewish people that we should not make an idol out of anything within creation. And this radical monotheism, this understanding God as holy other is extended through Christianity, yet its origin is expressly Jewish and remains so. In addition, an ethics of responsibility for the other is the bedrock of Jewish morality and the very meaning of being human. Finally, the concept of otherness or alterity <clears throat> is similar yet different between Levinas and Stein. For Levinas, the otherness of the other person facing me is an absolute distance and difference. The ego is not allowed to assume anything about the other or attempt to assimilate the otherness of the other to oneself. Whereas for Stein, empathy is a bridge uniting the other and the self through the possibility of shared life experiences and the social consolidation and unity 
of the I-thou relationship into a we, or what she calls a we consciousness. Levinas doesn't do this. And I think that shows the difference between um, Judaism uh, as Judaism and Christianity as an extension of Judaism. Mm -hmm. The possibility of divine immanence and interpersonal immanence in addition to divine transcendence and interpersonal transcendence. So the relationship between transcendence and immanence is a careful one. Uh, and I, I write about this in, in the book you mentioned entitled Emmanuel, uh, Levinas and Variations on God with Us. Yeah, Levinas is, is an interesting figure. I've not studied him in depth, I have to confess, but um, I, I just see, knowing a bit of his autobiography, I see some potential, at least, autobiographical roots to his thought. Or like, when I, when I learned about his life story, it seemed, it seemed like, okay, this, this makes sense of his thought in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, like you said, he grew up, um, he grew up in a Jewish home. He was Jewish, um, but also, right, going through um, World War II and the Holocaust and um, being, a, you know, he was a father and a husband and being away from his family for five years as, as a prisoner of war. Um, it makes sense how he prioritizes the other. Uh, and even I know some of the critiques against him, or at least some of the analyses of his work, have really uh, have really kind of looked at how he prioritizes the other to such an extent that um, it's almost a violence against the self, like it precedes the self. Mm -hmm. uh, he, I think he even uses the language of like an indictment. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but. As a father myself, like uh, that, that really resonates with me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can only imagine having to spend five years away. Um, you know, perhaps he was sure or unsure of his family's whereabouts and well-being um, without even having those those traumatizing experiences myself. I feel something of this sense of responsibility as almost a as almost a judgment against the self. Um, so there's yeah there's some some interesting I think uh, connections between his his actual life and his work I mean which is always the case but um, in your yeah so you mentioned in your work at Loyola Chicago um, during your uh, doctoral program that you studied with Jean Luc Marion who was at um, University of Chicago during that time um, and you wrote your dissertation on phenomenology um, which is not a theological subject properly speaking, um, and you found it to be kind of fertile soil in your writing since then, right? The majority probably of your writings have been kind of in the phenomenological world. So um, what would you say uh, to those who are maybe interested in theology and interested in phenomenology, um, why should people who are interested in theology study phenomenology, um, and what are kind of the benefits for um, conducting theology. Yes, I think phenomenology is incredibly helpful for theology, especially in the 21st century now. For one thing, it assists in overcoming the false dichotomy between faith and science that is so pervasive in contemporary culture. 
as the science of science, phenomenology catalyzes the recuperation of theology as the longstanding queen of all sciences, restoring theology to its rightful place within the university and within culture through courageous and open interdisciplinary dialogue. I think phenomenology facilitates this kind of interdisciplinary dialogue. It gives there be a common ground for it to happen. And second, phenomenology expands the intellectual horizon for thought and dilates the heart for compassionate pastoral ministry because its method intentionally suspends the natural attitude and premature judgment as to what is the case. Phenomenology expands the creative and receptive capacities of the human person in relation to God, the other, the saturating givenness of creation, and even in relation to oneself, to be able to be merciful and receptive to oneself. To say with St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it does not concern me in the least that I be judged by you or any human tribunal. I do not even pass judgment on myself. The one who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, do not make any judgment before the appointed time until the Lord comes. And finally, phenomenology brings us back, as Husserl insisted, to the things themselves. Du den Sachen selbst in German. Anyone who is serious about truth and committed to objectivity, and even the objectivity of subjectivity, will naturally recognize the unlimited benefits of the phenomenological method because it's all about objectivity, getting back to the things themselves and not assenting to this false dichotomy set up by Immanuel Kant between the noumenon and the phenomenon. For Husserl and his um, successors in phenomenology, the noumenon, the thing in itself, and the phenomenon, what we experience in consciousness, is one. Is They're united. There's no distinction. So for phenomenology, we can touch the things in themselves and as much as they give themselves to us all the way to the spiritual center of our being, consciousness. So phenomenology, therefore, is both a primer and a sustainer of the contemplative life to the measure that it prevents the unwarranted collapse of the soul's attentiveness to the glory of God radiating through the whole of creation in both its trials and joys. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's well, a great. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, I don't want to be mindful of your time, but I, I thank you again for um, meeting today and and chatting. I this I, I mentioned already. This has been kind of a personal um, passion project for me with the phenomenology booth. But your interview in particular, I was really excited about because. I mean, just as, uh, you know, Hauerwas and Bill Cavanaugh were kind of my entry point into the world of theology, your work was an entry point for me to the world of phenomenology and even just philosophy more broadly. So, um, yeah, thank you. This has been a real treat. My pleasure, Zach. It's great to hear about your own studies and, and life and just uh, really feeling like coming full circle uh, that you were able to read my little book on um, phenomenology and, and found it meaningful and helpful. Um, so I greatly appreciate this opportunity to get a chance to meet each other and, and talk about phenomenology in relation to 
theology, and as you said, it has uh, great um, implications and output for, for how we live our daily lives. Thanks for listening to The Theology Mill, brought to you by Whipfenstock Publishers. If you liked what you heard and would like to hear more, you can subscribe to our show where we have a lot more content coming your way. I'm your host, Zach Mickle, signing off on this episode of The Theology Mill. We hope to see you again to share a drink and talk all things theology. But until then, God bless, and we'll see you soon.